Welcome back, ladies, to the Femme Future Podcast. I'm your host, April, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Peter Gregerson and Dr. Christine Metz from the Rose Endometriosis Study at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research at Northwell Health. Thank you both for being on our podcast today. Really exciting month. It's Endo Awareness Month. And I just participated in your study and was blown away at what you're doing, how you're doing it. It's very innovative. It's interesting. And as my listeners know, endometriosis historically has been very poorly researched and really poorly funded. Like that's part of the problem is the funding hasn't been there to have quality research. And so we've had a huge gap in understanding and knowledge around this disease. So pleased that both of you are on the job. You're working on it. We're (laughs) making progress. I'm really excited. Like, I'm not making that up. I'm really excited for women of the future. Real quick before we get going, can you give me a brief background of who you are and your credentials? You have really amazing credentials, and I thought it'd be great for you instead of me to mess them up. I come at this having been trained in medicine and rheumatology. And I actually led, basically cloned the first gene for rheumatoid arthritis and then led a very large international consortium to identify the remaining genes of which there are over a hundred. And so that was my career in large part, and then trying to find out how those genes work. But about eight or nine years ago, I became aware of endometriosis and I said, what is this? It's common and it's highly genetic. It's more genetic than most of the other autoimmune diseases that I've studied. So that sort of got me thinking and then talking to Christine about what we could do about this. So I come from a very different background in terms of disease, but it's very similar in terms of my overall interest in understanding complex diseases that have a big genetic component. I started my scientific career in the 1990s, and most of my interest was in the regulation of inflammation. And I happened to stumble into reproductive work through my interest in endothelial cells, which at the time, the only source that I was able to get my hands on was the human umbilical cord. So I needed to interact with some physicians here in labor and delivery to obtain placentas after delivery and umbilical cords to isolate the endothelium. And it just so happened I struck up conversations about maternal fetal health. I was then taken into human reproductive research and have been doing that since the early 2000s. And unlike Peter, I am not a trained clinician. I am a bench research scientist. So we came to the conclusion that looking at menstrual effluent was an important thing to do because it would reflect what was going on in the uterine lining. And quite frankly, when we first walked into our research nurses and and coordinator staff and told them we were going to collect menstrual effluent, they looked at us like we were crazy. But we've actually made fantastic progress. Every step of the way, it's a struggle because no one had really done this before in any significant way. Yeah. Okay. I have to stop you there. And I have to break down two things you said, because they're really, they're actually quite huge in the endo community. So first of all, endo is more genetic than some of the other autoimmune diseases. That's not something I've heard before. And I had a suspicion about because my grandmother had it. My sister's having symptoms right now. Like there's a real tight link there. 
but yet people yes. don't tend to want to say that. So I think that's fascinating that you said that. And I think yeah. it's also interesting that you came from the autoimmune world because people keep debating, is endo an autoimmune problem? So anyway. Yes. So it's interesting. You calculate the genetic component of something by figuring out something called heritability, which basically is the degree to which genetics contributes to the overall diversity or variance of the problem in the population. So the heterogeneity for endometriosis is about 50%. And for autoimmune diseases, it's lower generally. It's 30% for type 1 diabetes or rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. And that heritability is hard to calculate because it's really a measure of how frequently things run in families. And you can do that either by looking at families and seeing if there's somebody affected, how often is their sibling affected? That's one way of calculating it. The other way is to look at twins and compare the rates in identical twins versus non-identical twins who are like sibs and share half their genes. And if the rate falls off tremendously, say by half, it means that there's a huge genetic component assuming that identical twins are not more similar in other ways and do the same things, which they do. But generally speaking, it's a pretty good indicator of heritability. That estimate is based on the fact that it aggregates in families to a large degree and that identical twins are much more likely to both have the disease than fraternal twins who are like SIBs and who are presumably matched for environments and where they grew up and all that stuff. Right. So that's where the 50% heritability comes from. Heritability is of importance to a geneticist because it tells you whether it's worth looking for genes. Yeah. <laughs> right? If there's very little heritability, it doesn't mean there are no genetic effect, but it's going to be harder to find it. Right. So the fact is that people have done scans of the genome and have found at least 20 regions across the genome that have some genetic contribution to endometriosis. Now, each of those regions, in general, gives a pretty small degree of risk. If you put them all together, you'd find probably that if they had 23 of the 25 variants, they'd be at substantial risk. But most of them are very modest risk. There may be exceptions to that where there are families in which it's really common. And I suspect that those families carry genes that really are much more highly penetrant and high risk. And the evidence for that is that you can actually track chromosomes going through families. And there are regions on chromosome 7 and chromosome 10 that have been implicated in some families. Hmm. You don't know how much those regions contribute to the problem overall. But it's important to find those families because they can give you a clue mm -hmm. about what genes are acting and where they might act. So the people that do this kind of work, I did this work for rheumatoid arthritis. The people that are doing it for endometriosis, major scientists at Cambridge in England, this group in Australia, have found a whole bunch of genes with modest effect and they're interesting for us because many of those genes seem to work on cells that are found in menstrual effluent mm. and in the endometrial lining. So that fits. And that speaks to your second thing, which is, oh, people think there's this autoimmune component. And then I have to admit, when I first got interested in this, I thought, oh, 
maybe some of these genes for autoimmunity are really acting in endometriosis. But it really doesn't look like that very much. Mm. There are a few immune genes that you could argue about. There's some epidemiology, modest epidemiology, saying that maybe rheumatoid arthritis and possibly lupus is more common in people with endometriosis, but it's, it's not a huge effect. So my personal bias is that while there are immune components here, for sure, the genes underlying it probably not very related to common autoimmune disease. Fascinating. Yeah. We're going to have to dig back into that. And, and I'm sorry, Dr. Christine, I ended up on a tangent already, which is probably going to happen because these are such hotly debated topics too. It's so interesting. I think one of the things we should probably clarify about endometriosis is its definition. And by definition, it's been defined by international societies now as the presence of endometrial-like tissue growing outside of the uterus, mainly in about 85% of women in the pelvic uh, cavity in the abdominal area as these lesions that look like the endometrium and accompanied by inflammatory responses there. So there's a lot of focus on the lesions themselves. So you might say, why are you studying menstrual blood if the whole focus of this disease is on the lesions, we ask the same question because we believe that the endometrium is very much affected in women with endometriosis versus healthy controls. And that's been very well established by the scientific community that, that there are big differences in the lining of the uterus of women with endo versus those who do not have endo. Part of that may be due to crosstalk with those lesions, and part of it may not be. It is very unknown. And of course, it's unknown how people get endo. The documentation is that 90% of women have retrograde menstruation. So menses does end up in the pelvic cavity exactly where these lesions arise and grow. So we have focused our efforts on defining at a cellular level the differences in the endometrium, which is shed every month in women as part of the menstrual cycle as a form of studying the disease, as well as developing a diagnostic and hopefully developing better treatments. I just love that you decided. And I could see why people at first were like, you want to do what? But it actually makes so much logical sense in hindsight, if you think about it. Because women bleed every month. Why not collect that blood and take a look at it and see what's going on? If there are markers it's that can so help. obvious. Yeah. I had to have my blood drawn last week. That was more painful than collecting menstrual blood because yeah. I'm going to have a period anyway. So it just, it, it made so much logical sense to me when I read about your study and what you're doing. And I'm really excited about what you're finding and what kind of biomarkers might exist because I've had my own theories about biomarkers for a few years now that it's, to me, ridiculous that we're in, well, now we're in 2022. At the time I was complaining like 2019 and 2020 that we don't have accurate biomarkers that doctors at the doctor's office can look at and say, hey, let's at least look at these. Women are still being told, I have to open you up. It's like, really? Like, come on. There's got to be some biomarkers that at least lead the woman to the decision that surgery is even warranted. I've had so many conversations with women who are like, I don't want to have surgery. I have no, except for pain, I have no other thing that lets me know that I should have surgery. And then I've even had women in my community, my support community, who don't even have symptoms. Like they know that they're having infertility, but they don't have any other symptoms whatsoever. And sometimes those women are the ones with the most severe cases when the surgeon goes in. 
they have complete frozen pelvis, all their organs are glued together, and yet they had no pain, which I find fascinating that I could be in extreme pain and have one level of disease and she could have no pain and have that level of disease. So this problem is very odd. It's an odd problem that you could have no symptoms and have that level of invasion of cells. So I love that you're looking at the the period blood. What are you finding so far? Obviously, you can't tell me everything, but what can you tell me? Where are we headed with biomarkers on this? I'm really excited about biomarkers. I guess in our earlier work that has been published, we have identified that there seems to be a signature of inflammation associated with this condition in the endometrial lining. So there's actually a condition called chronic endometritis, which is not well studied or well classified or diagnosed in this country unless you have infertility and have an endometrial biopsy. But it's believed to be as common as endometriosis, which is approximately one in 10 women of reproductive age. And it puts women at a threefold increased risk of endometriosis. And what it is, it's a chronic inflammation of the lining of the uterus. And our findings suggest that this could be occurring because if we treat our cells from healthy patients with cytokines or factors that would mimic that process, they look like, phenotypically look like endocells. And then we've also identified that there is a significant impairment in decidualization, which is the differentiation of a specific cell type in the endometrium that helps the uterus become receptive for a fertilized egg. Now, only mammals that menstruate develop spontaneous decidualization, and only those mammals that menstruate seem to get endometriosis. So there's clearly some connection here. And it was already previously described that there was a decidualization defect in women with endometriosis. Hmm. Now, that could be related to their infertility or not, but we believe it's related to an inflammatory process, perhaps, in the endometrium. And our earlier work also showed that there was a reduction in uterine NK cells by profiling the menstrual effluent. And those cells clear inflammatory cells that are present so it comes together. Our more recent work has focused more at the cellular level of fresh menstrual effluent. And I'll let Peter talk about those studies. So when we started off this, we were able to get certain cells like uterine NK cells and stromal cells and show that they had a decidualization defect by just growing them out. They grow well and you can do that. But perhaps a little embarrassingly, we came to the conclusion that we were missing some really important things in the way we were collecting and analyzing menstrual effluent. So a year or two ago, we said, wait a minute, there's all this clumps of stuff and clots and things that we're just ignoring because we're just taking out the single cells and growing them. So we spent a lot of time doing some basic pathology on what is in menstrual blood. And it turns out there are these huge fragments of the lining of the uterus being shed. It's not just single cells. It's not just blood. It's fragments of tissue that are coming out. And in fact, we showed that these fragments are uterine lining that have glands, that have these stromal cells, that have uterine NK cells, And we were not looking at them. Mm -hmm. So what we've discovered is that we can take the menstrual effluent, enrich for these fragments, 
and then digest them to get all the single cells out. And then we get a huge number of stromal cells. I mean, we used to get 1% stromal cells. Now it's, you know, 10, 15%, lots of uterine NK cells, all kinds of different inflammatory cells are sitting in this tissue that is being shed at the time of menstruation. So what we've done recently is take an approach that has taken certainly the immunology world and the cancer world by storm, which is something called single cell RNA sequencing. And basically what you can do is take several thousand, 10,000 cells, isolate each one individually, label it with a barcode, and get a signature of all the genes or a large fraction of the genes that are being produced in that single cell. There are thousands of genes made for cells. So if you get a thousand cells or a thousand genes, you're talking about a million data points. And so 5,000 cells and 3,000 genes, you're talking about 15 million data points. So that's the kind of density of data we are now getting out of the cells that come from these fragments of tissue. And what is amazing is how different it is in people with endometriosis versus normals. First of all, there are four times as many uterine NK cells in people for controls versus endometriosis. There is a huge deficit, which is nice for us because as we saw that even in the single cells, it was really dramatic. There is an increase in a certain type of inflammatory cell called a B cell. It's three times as common in people with endometriosis that not. And then there are more subtle differences in a whole variety of other cells, including T cells. There are epithelial cells that we haven't really examined yet. And when you look at the stromal cells, which we think a lot of the business is happening in the stromal cells, the number of them is not different between cases and controls. But if you dive in and see what are they doing in the controls, they're decidualizing. In the cases, there is a deficit in the decidualization, and a lot of them have a very inflammatory appearance. They make a lot of cytokines that are inflammatory. Some of them seem to be undergoing a process that is known as senescence, which is another really hot area in science now, where they're not dead. They just are staying there and making lots of inflammatory cytokines. So it's as if there's a deficit in that differentiation event. And as a result, there's an accumulation of these pro-inflammatory cells. There are no uterine NK cells that are much diminished, so they're not being removed properly. So there seems to be kind of a circular process of regulating how the stromal cells are differentiating, how many uterine NK cells come in, whether they're cleaning up the inflammatory stromal cells or not. And so it's revealed a model which we think could be induced in part by chronic inflammation, stress, maybe some infectious agents. Chronic endometritis has been associated with bacterial infections, and we're thinking about viral infections as well. So it's kind of revealed this enormous, rich, really an embarrassment of riches of findings that are each potential biomarkers. So the question and the challenge for us now is to take this data, which costs three to $5,000 to get on each individual, and cone it down on the things that are really going to be informative with things that are not expensive to do. Mm -hmm. That's what we're right now going to start doing as a clinical trial. 
to see if we can do that. Right. To translate these findings into a diagnostic or a screening tool so that women would go to their annual gynecologic exam and have an assessment of their menstrual effluent. It will clearly help those women who have pain and symptoms, but we also think that it's possible to extend to those who have silent endometriosis, which you referred to as women learning about their endo through infertility workup a little bit later in life. But hopefully we envision a day where menstrual effluent is just a clear practice of an assessment for a woman during a gynecologic exam. And not only for endometriosis, but all sorts of uterine health issues, although yeah. we're mainly focused on endometriosis. Yeah, but you're learning so much, it's going to make sense that you're probably going to start diving into other things. Like I had a good friend who had a really bad fibroid problem. And so once you start yeah. looking at this, I'm sure that you're going to get markers that'll tell us that there's something wrong with the uterus, that something needs to be investigated. I, I just, I'm thrilled that you're doing this work because I've been thinking for a long time that we need to be more advanced in our understanding of this. And it's crazy. I'm like, aren't we in like 20th century and we're still yeah. just telling women, I'm sorry, you're in pain. And we're not actually using science to look at what's actually happening. So I'm just so pleased that you're doing this. Cellular senescence. I have to bring this up. I've been kind of obsessed with Dr. Sinclair's longevity research. He did such a good job of giving like pictures to map out what cellular senescence is. And I've been telling women ever since, I'm pretty convinced that endometriosis lesions are zombie cells. They're senescent. And then what's happening is they are giving off, you're getting all this extra inflammation. And also I think it's altering the immune system too, because we know too many of them collected will alter your immune system's function. And all of these things are like compounding to create all of the issues that are quote unquote endometriosis. So if we can look at it that way, we can kind of backtrack and figure out why are they senescent? How do we treat cellular senescence better? Anyway, I don't know how far off we are, but like I dream of one day where not only do we accurately diagnose what's going on, but then maybe women go in for an IV that sends either a drug or a therapeutic that helps them clear out cellular senescence yeah. and gives them an NK cell or boost. So I don't know if that's completely yeah. outrageous or if that's where we're headed. No, but I, I think you're, I think you're right on track. You should join the team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the most dramatic findings in mice, for example, is with aging mice you get rid of the senescent cells and they're, you know, and they're they, fine, they become right? more youthful. Yeah. And so it's not crazy to think that these senescent cells that are sitting in there and they're making these proteins that are pro-inflammatory, we just get rid of them. And we actually have been working on trying finding compounds that could inhibit the production of senescent cells from stroma. Christine has done quite a bit of this work. So that's amazing. Because I know, like, the reason why I came to this conclusion, in addition to just reading all this literature that's coming out and what we're learning, yeah. is that after my excision surgery, and white excision makes sense, like, you have to get all of the cell and you have to get all of the surrounding issue so that you can remove yeah. it all. If anything stays, so in my case, I had a real poor surgery where it was burning and they burned everything in and I got sicker. And so yeah. just from my own personal experience, it was like, okay, so I had a doctor burn basically senescent broken cells further into my tissue, and now my body's even more angry yeah. about what happened. And then I had a really great experience of having a white excision surgery where all of that was removed, and I'm like 100% better. I feel like a new person, I'm functioning, I'm doing really well. So then it made sense that these cells aren't just something that should stay in the body. They need to be completely removed because yes. they have some sort of mechanism of action that's happening while they sit there in the tissue. You have it right, totally there, April. And I think a focus on teens 
will really tremendously improve our understanding of this disease. And that has been sadly lacking, in part, I think, due to a lack of funding and in part due to a lack of knowledge among many that young teens could actually have endo. And we've started enrolling teens in our study and we can actually test the hypothesis whether they have fewer senescent cells. For example, you know, did they accumulate over time as it would in particular, you know, in aging? It's exactly what we see. And also starting therapies at a younger age, can you actually prevent lesions from forming in these young women? And I think too much of the focus has been on hormone manipulation and only pain reduction. So all of the FDA approved drugs that are available to women, and we've only had one new drug in 12 years, they only target pain. They are not targeting the disease, which is really critical. Yeah. And that's been my biggest complaint when I tell women, I'm like, hey, you're going to get thrown something for your symptoms, but you need to go deeper and you need to find answers for the actual disease itself. Because too many women take whatever they can find to suppress symptoms, and then 10 years later are in a really bad state. You know, they're in frozen pelvis. They've lost function and mobility. We need to stop saying endo is benign too. It's not. It's like invading people's bowels. It's invading your kidneys. If your kidneys aren't functioning and your bowels can't work, we have a very serious problem on our hands. It's not just, oh, your uterus, like, which is important. It's a very important organ by itself. I don't know why we've like reduced it in importance. But despite that, like if you can't actually have adequate bowel movements, we're talking about a very serious problem. This is not just something to give women a pain pill and send them on their way. This is not how we should be treating this. So anyway, I'm glad that your research is giving evidence to why this is very serious. We need early markers. I would love a world where teenagers are screened and then treated adequately or given some sort of information early on. Because I was told for decades, you're fine. Take your pills. Yeah. You'll be okay. And then in my mid-20s, I'm not okay. Very ill, can't get out of bed, can't function. We we hear this story time and time again. It's so unusual we don't hear that story. Let's put it that way. Which is tragic. That's the common story that's happening. So I'm I'm looking forward to peeling back the layers on it and making it not that tragic (laughs) for future generations. So where are we headed with timeline? What do you think? Are we going to have some screening tests on the market in a few years, five years from now? Like, I want to give women hope that are listening, that are excited about the future of where we're headed. And then also related to that, you know, treatment, you know, this kind of like murky future I depicted of you sit down and maybe you even get an IV and you're sent a bunch of things that help up your NK killer cell count and you're able to do something that's terribly non-invasive compared to surgery, but also terribly effective because it's helping your body naturally clear and clean out senescent cells without a surgeon having to manually do it. How close are we? I'll take the timeline and Christine can tell us what the future of therapy is. (laughs) Sounds good. I love it. (laughs) The timeline, I think, is pretty optimistic. You know, we need to go through another round of looking at 50 or 100 people, cases and controls, and come up with what we want to focus on. But we got a lot of things that we can focus on and come up with something that's cost-effective as a screening tool. And I think we'll be able to do that by the end of this year. Then I think what we will need to do is do an actual prospective trial of people who have symptoms and who are going to get diagnosed with laparoscopy or some other method and prove that our tests predict the presence of endometriosis in the abdomen, and that women who don't have those symptoms 
but who get a laparoscopy for whatever reason or a laparotomy, who we say they don't have endometriosis. And in fact, they don't have endometriosis when you look inside their peritoneal cavity. So I think that is the kind of trial that will be required by the FDA to approve this as a diagnostic test. If we can come up with tests that are pretty easy to do and not too expensive, and they're as good as we think they're going to be, I think we could complete that trial the following year and into the 2020, whatever it would be, for to get an FDA-approved test that would be widely available. That's probably a little too optimistic, but frankly, the data we're seeing is so radical. The differences between endometriosis and controls is really stunning. So we should be able to come up with things that would detect that and have a biomarker that wasn't too expensive or probably a group of biomarkers. Once we've diagnosed somebody, say, yep, your symptoms are probably due to endometriosis. Maybe they should have a laparoscopy and have wide area excision. Right. But maybe Christine will come up with something that will correct the problem. Right. Right. So I think, as Peter pointed out, the beauty of menstrual blood is that it can be collected month after month. And we could actually use it to study people's responses to various therapies and see which markers perhaps change when therapy is successful. We can also interrogate the data to see what pathways are implicated with their aberrant behavior in an endometriosis patient's menstrual blood versus a control. And we've been starting to do that. And clearly, senescence and inflammatory processes in the endometrium seem to be a very strong point. And we think that there will be new innovative treatments for women based on our findings that will not be harmful to women. So I think when we started the study in 2013, I would say about 80% of the women joining the study were actually on hormones if they had endometriosis. We're not seeing that anymore. Many women with endometriosis are not on hormones anymore. And a lot of them say those treatments are worse than the disease. Some of so them are. So it's a really strong <laughs> yeah. impetus for yeah. us to come up with something better. And I think there are things that are better. And I think there can be things that are locally placed, similar to an IUD that emits the little agent that needs to be there to correct the deficit that is found in endo. I think better understanding this possibility that there are infections mm -hmm. associated with endo is a biggie. And people used to think that the uterus was sterile. But then again, if you think about theories of evolution, one of the theories of why women menstruate was to rid themselves of sperm-related pathogens. <laughs> so clearly, it can't be sterile and we're getting rid of sperm-related pathogens. But I think there's a happy medium in which there are women that do have infections in their endometrium that go undiagnosed. The symptoms are not anything significant. Most women wouldn't know they had them. They're very vague. But if you don't screen for them, you will not find them. Right. And I think we have to change our way of thinking about this disease pretty dramatically. Everyone agrees that inflammation is part of this disease, but most of that focuses on the lesions in the pelvic cavity or where else in the body those lesions land not in the site of the endometrium. And I think we have a lot to learn, that I could tell you. But with menstrual blood, the opportunities seem to be limitless. 
That's so exciting. Yeah, there was like a study that was two years ago that came out about the macrophages being a higher concentration in little endometriosis lesions. And then that's when I started getting hot to trot on the infection and sort of infection. I'm going to call it infection theory. I don't know if someone has said that formally, but that basically what's happening is a bacterial or viral agent is actually altering those cells. And then those cells are going senescent, which we could maybe hypothesize is the body's way of even trying to stop it from becoming yeah. you know, systemic yeah. inflammation, Absolutely. like your whole body's you know going to die. So your body's pretty smart. It's like, I have this infectious thing. I can't seem to deal with it. Maybe I don't have enough NK killer cells to deal with it. So now I'm going to just shut the cell down. But then we know if that cell isn't eventually cleared the way it needs to be because the genetic material is wrong now or whatever, it sits there and creates these cytokines and, and sends out more trauma signals so that your body continues to compound the issue. I've had the pleasure of seeing pictures and images and videos of women who've had surgeries where they've had frozen pelvis. If you look at it, it's like this spider web kind of like interesting tissue that looks like, man, trauma has been happening here for like a decade or more, right? Like you look at it and it's not even like you need to be convinced that something traumatic has been going on. So it makes you wonder what kind of infection did she have or what kind of agent caused this to happen that the body was continually fighting these areas in her in her abdominal so there, you know, some of the genes that we see increased in the stromal cells of people with endometriosis are, in fact, what some of the genes that have been mapped as being risk factors. And one of them is fibronectin, which is involved in fibrosis and invasion and stuff. So I think you're on the right track there. That's the way we're thinking of it too, is that somehow this transformation occurs where this self-perpetuating inflammation and fibrosis is happening. Yeah. And and like I said, I would have never known that if I didn't work for a surgeon and got to see photos and and surgery videos, right? Like those aren't things I found on the internet when I was just a patient. I had privy to them, but after seeing them, I can never unsee them. And now I know that what you read on the internet is not accurate when you see the disease at the local level. It's like, that's odd looking when you look at it. Anyway, it's interesting. I'm so excited about just everything that we've been talking about. It's fun to clarify some of my thoughts, even with you who are more expert (laughs) than I am in this area. So it's fun to bounce them off of you. Before we kind of wind down, I would love to hear a little bit about what you're most excited about in women's health. It could be this new test. It could be these new treatments. But what is the thing that you're most excited about? And really everything we talked about is going to revolutionize the way women are treated. But what is the thing that you're most excited about? And then I'd love to invite women to connect more with your work and your research. I'm actually incredibly excited about having menstrual blood being viewed as a biological specimen that has hope, promise, and information rather than something that's discarded and we don't talk about it. And I think talking about menstruation, talking about menstrual blood, talking about this with other people helps tremendously. And what you're doing here with this blog is amazing. Not only are you bringing this kind of information to people, but you're giving the spin of science and a better level of understanding so that women can start making better decisions on their own. I think the condition frustrates healthcare providers equally as patients and firmly believe that analysis of menstrual blood being incorporated into their annual exam is going to be it, we hope. That's great. So I agree with all of that. I would just say that I've had a long career working on the genetics of autoimmunity and trying to figure out how some of those genes work. And for me, it's transformational to be involved in research, which is clearly going to have an impact Mm -hmm. on clinical practice. 
That is not a situation that I've been in in my career. I've been working fairly basically at genetics and immunology. So it's really exciting to be part of a project that has that immediacy to it. Yeah, I I have to 100% agree with you. I'm very excited about your work and I'm going to follow you very closely to see what happens and what you get approved because women are desperately in need of this. They're going to be excited just to listen to this, to be honest, I'll tell you, because I'm excited. So I know they're going to be excited because it feels so hopeless, but that's why I yeah, this podcast. Right. It's not hopeless. There is work being done. We are learning more about endo, and there will be better treatments and better diagnostic tools here in the hopefully very short future. Thank you both so much for being on my podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Dr. Metz, Dr. Gregerson, thank you for your work. Thank you for your time. If women want to get more involved with your research or your work, what's the best way to do that? And I'd be happy to link it below in the show notes. Google ROSE, R-O-S-E, which stands for Research Outsmarts Endometriosis. (laughs) So ROSE and endometriosis, if they Google those two things, our study will come up first, guaranteed. (laughs) And then I will link how they can become a research participant are you still interested in recruiting research participants at this time? We yes. are enrolling okay. every day, every day. It's disease is so complicated and heterogeneous that you really need to study a lot of people to understand the underlying heterogeneity. Large numbers of people need to be studied before we tease apart all the different ways it might work. Right. Maybe we'll have to have this conversation again at a future date. There's also so many different subtypes and different forms of endo it's looking like. And this might come back to our theory of maybe it depends on the agent that caused it in the first place. Maybe we'll learn this in the next few years, I'm hoping. So not every endo is created equal and they're not all the same. That is totally true. Totally true. I mean, is the genetic problem in the stromal cells or in some people's in the uterine and K cells or... Some people, it's in their tendency to become senescent. It's going to be diverse. Right. We we believe it's a very diverse disease. Calling it one word is going to change. (laughs) Good. I'm glad to hear it. Invite us back in a year. Yes, let's do that for sure. It's on the calendar. We're going to do it. future podcast was created and is hosted by April Summerford, executive podcast producer, Mather DeLeon. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including April Summerford and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.